0: this is concepts where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world phil shea and steve rose my name is phil shea i am writing for makeaskilljack.com and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com
1: steve My name is Steve Rose and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com where I write about mental health and addiction.
0: Today we have a special guest on. She is somebody that Steve and I are both a huge fan of. She has a YouTube channel and I'll read her introduction that she provided me right here. Zoe B. She, her, is a college English teacher turned YouTuber who makes videos about literature, pop culture, and education. When she's not creating content for the internet, Zoe spends her time writing, playing video games badly, (laughs) her words, and hanging out with her partner and their 75 pound German shepherd. She also has two cats and a tarantula. Uh, we are talking today about her video on pain and whether it's good or bad. It's a response video to PragerU, who will probably come up a number of times. Prager is just straight up propaganda. <laughs> There's stuff that's directed at kids, pretty disgusting. Anyway, I'll link that in the show notes. And now on with the show. Welcome to Pros and Concepts.
1: Welcome.
0: Thanks Steve. Today we're going to be talking about pain and we have on with us our special guest Zoe B.
2: Hello hello I am happy to be here.
0: Good to have you. We are happy to have you. Steve you've been digging into the research there do you have a definition of pain so we can start it off?
1: I think we should just keep it simple just physical or mental suffering to put it the most simply. Zoe would you have a different way of defining it?
2: I think physical and mental suffering is... I think that covers all
1: of our bases, pretty (laughs) much. I think that covers a lot of it, yeah. So, Zoe, you came up with quite the analysis on the politics of pain. And it was a criticism of... I always say it wrong. PragerU or you or...
2: I think it's PragerU. I've heard some people pronounce it Prager, but I'm pretty sure it's Prager.
0: Right, yes. Yes. about Dennis Prager, that wonderful human being. (laughs) (laughs) It's his fake university that he just posts his propaganda on. YouTube. So yeah, it's in response to that.
1: Yes. Yeah. And your video is quite the articulate analysis of how this PragerU video on the politics of pain is quite off base. And I believe after watching that video is quite the mischaracterization of left politics. And so where did you want to start, Phil?
0: I was just going to ask Zoe if she wanted to recount anything she said in her video. We'll link it as well. But like just to start off, we can go from there. Sure.
2: Sure. I would be more than happy to. But let me... Briefly look over my script again so I remember all of the things that I said.
0: It's been a bit, for sure.
2: It has. And I just, I rewatched the video the other day too in preparation for this and it's still like all left
1: my brain. I can relate after writing almost 100 articles on my website and somebody's like, talk to me about this topic that I've written like a huge article on. I'm like, I forget. I know nothing about the topic. Refer to my article.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Past Zoe knew what she was talking about. Yeah, so in the video, I talked about a specific community post that I saw on PragerU's YouTube page. And the community post is a poll that was asking viewers whether they agree or disagree that quote, "Most of leftism is an avoidance of pain. So essentially, I broke down what they were asking because a lot of those words in that question are, are pretty nebulous and you know they arguably leave those terms. Vague and undefined on purpose so that you can answer it however you want. And so I broke down the question, tried to figure out what that question even meant, and then talked about what I see as the difference between how people on the left see pain versus how people on the right see pain. And just sort of dove into those kind of political and philosophical and a little bit of the, you know, psychological context. But I know that that's, you know, you two are the expert on that. So we can talk about that a little bit more later on if you would like.
1: For sure. And so you were reacting to, I guess, the characterization that the left believes that is really characterized by pain avoidance, just generally. And, And that the left is too pain avoidant to recognize reality for what it is and therefore has to construct all of these narratives to avoid pain because they're too sensitive and (laughs) especially (laughs) snowflakes what have you and so what was your kind of response to that in terms of what the left is actually about versus what it was being characterized as
2: yeah so i mean i think that the left is more focused on structures and systems and groups of people, whereas the right is more focused on kind of individuals. And so if you take the, you know, conservative position and think of all kind of social issues in terms of individuals, then it sort of makes sense that, you know, pain is sort of a not only necessary thing, but a good thing. Because, you know, as you know, growth as a human being kind of requires pain. Growth is a very painful thing. And if your political and philosophical ideas are based on individuals, then like, yeah, pain is good because it it helps individuals do things and individuals have to overcome pain. And without pain, there can be no growth. But if you're thinking about things in terms of systems and about how, you know, these overarching structures can potentially negatively affect groups of people, then like, no, we should be fighting against those systems that are causing pain to people and maybe, you know, quote unquote, avoid that pain.
0: Right, love it. To extend that further, like the right does view pain in terms of like more personal levels, but it seems like they also extend it to corporations a lot of the time, like the corporate personhood. Because <laughs> yeah. I was just actually having a butting of heads on Reddit just before this today, because there was an AMA and me anything by a company that makes e-bikes, and they would only answer very specific questions, and most of the ones that i ever, like like voted were not getting responses from them at all. So it was pretty clearly just a really bad PR stunt, and people were calling them out on it, and there. Was this guy that I was also calling him out of. And this guy got mad at me for trying to hold them accountable for that because we are the product on social media platforms and marketing to us is how they make money. So this is just how it is. If you don't like it, go make your own social network. So it's like, okay. But the thing that I think that they don't like is when you use your personal agency to change systems or corporations. For some reason, that's where the pain of like having to fight against a giant monolith is somehow not legitimate pain or... It's just whining too much. Like, what do you think about this?
2: I think that that's a really interesting question. I think that it really comes down to sort of the, you know, status quo and the pain, if that's the word that we want to use, the pain that we feel or go through when we are fighting the status quo is like you were saying, it is sort of like invalid pain. Because we're going through pain for bad reasons, I guess. That's sort of my interpretation is that like if you're trying to change things that shouldn't be changed, then you're going through pain for no reason. So it's pointless and therefore bad and
1: useless. Right, because when you look at a lot of activism, it doesn't look like it's the most comfortable, cushy thing. (laughs) You're out (laughs) in the streets, in the elements, kind of being gassed by police, and like it doesn't...
0: Getting ridiculed by the media as well. Yeah. So it's like multiple forms of pain, physical, social, emotional.
1: Right, right. And and as you said, it's kind of invalidated because it's superfluous. You shouldn't be doing it in the first place because this thing is not a worthy cause.
0: There's a contradiction in there too, though, because it's like... Pain is inevitable, so I guess that's where they would apologize it. Pain is inevitable, life sucks, and if you're too weak, then, well, go away, basically. Social Darwinism, essentially. Oh, so, yeah. inflicting more pain on yourself is, therefore, just a fool's errand, and changing the system, I guess, is probably going to lead to a worse system overall. It seems like they think it's hard-won benefits we've got, and we shouldn't give up what meager amounts we have, because this is the best we're going to get.
1: Yeah, I, I like your distinction there between the individual, uh, the right is focused on uh, individual pain is necessary, and, and you accept that point. And that's something I wanted to ask you, but it looks like you really have accepted that that's a valid thing. And despite that being true, we should still try to minimize collective pains. And I guess just if people are not kind of familiar with, I guess, sociological perspectives or activism, what types of collective pain are you referring to? What are examples of that specifically?
2: I mean, I think there's, you know, sort of an infinite number of those systemic racism, sexism, transphobia, you know, all of those. But also, I mean, I think like class struggles as well, systems that are built to keep rich people rich and poor people not rich. I think all of those are things that target entire groups of people and keep them down and keep them going through pain because it benefits the people at the top who are keeping those systems in place.
1: Right. Yeah, for
0: sure. Somebody teased apart stress. And I think it's very useful because I think this is one thing that Steve and I have been throwing back and forth about like where the left and the right kind of go astray. I think the left likes to remove unnecessary stress. It's trying to remove the distress and can go so far as to maybe remove sources of any stress, which means it might stop some amount of growth that comes with that. Whereas the right, I think, Focuses way too much on the you stress part of it, saying that basically it's a mindset. You should just like pick yourself up by your bootstraps, the impossible act, and just reframe everything as a growth experience. Because I guess maybe their problems have always been things that help them grow. Maybe I don't know.
1: For sure, I like I like that way of looking at it. And I know in your video you actually say you're not a big fan of the bootstrappy philosophy.
2: Yeah, that's putting it lightly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How would you put it less lightly?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's full of shit. I don't know if you guys like. I can do can if I'm allowed to say that on sure,
1: this podcast. Yeah. But Go okay. for
0: it. <laughs> I held back just to be polite.
2: <laughs> well, so the phrase was actually originally coined to be absurd. Like it, it was coined. I forget who coined it, but like the the phrase "pick yourself up by your bootstraps" that is literally impossible. To do because that's just not how gravity works. So that phrase was created with that in mind and it was pointing out how absurd it is to, you know, think that people can just make themselves suffer enough so that they somehow become in those classes of people who are in power. And that's just not how it works.
1: Right. The radical individualism and it kind of neglects the fact that we are social beings by nature and that I know Phil was making an argument yesterday, which I love, that Because we are social beings by by nature, that means we must be inherently good by nature because broadly speaking, pro-sociality is survival and a necessary need.
2: It's funny that you bring that up because there was, in preparation for the video, I was watching some other PragerU videos just to try to get a sense of like what PragerU meant when they were talking about pain in that post. And one of the videos that I watched was an interview that Dennis Prager did on a different podcast. I was never able to figure out what the podcast was, but regardless, Dennis Prager was talking about pain and he was talking about this, you know, idea of like individuals. And one reason why he sees that they are avoiding pain is because they believe that everybody is good, and they believe that there is this, like, inherent goodness in people. Therefore, this ideal, this, like, you know, ideal of a painless world is possible to leftists. But he takes this stance as a much more realistic approach where, like, no, that's not true. What is actually true is that people are bad and flawed, and therefore, pain is, you can't avoid it. It is inherent to the human condition because we are all flawed and, you know, have this capacity for evil. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you're exactly right that this, you know, individual versus social distinction often does also overlap with the are we good or are we bad question, which, you know, obviously I don't think we can <laughs> fully prove that one way or another.
0: No, it's, it's definitely salt. We've got that one down. Steve just did it with my proof. Congratulations. I did it with proof. Yeah,
1: salt I mean, this philosophical debate on the human nature does underlie the politics of pain fundamentally. And I think you're right on there uh, Dennis Breaker does have quite 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 the pessimistic, perhaps Hobbesian approach to this. And this goes back to the debate kind of between Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, where Rousseau was of, uh, you know, human nature is good. It's society that makes us bad. And then Hobbes was like, no, human nature is bad. It's a society that makes us good. And therefore we need structures and tough on crime approaches. And so there's that kind of eternal debate that happens. And I think, would you say that that that's kind of behind some of this here?
2: Oh, I think for sure it is. I think that that does kind of underlie a lot of political arguments. You know, if you strip everything back to its most base components, I think that that is often the question that you're left
1: with and i know in your video there's another video you talk about being a natural empath and that by nature being a natural empath being very giving there's a lot of strengths to that and weaknesses to that which you can learn with personal boundaries but it does seem like deep down you are a natural optimist on human nature and that you do believe we are good and i know you said that we can't prove it but can you speak more to why maybe you believe that
2: oh gosh (laughs) that is a question i was not prepared to think about today hmm why do i think people are good i don't know (laughs) Now that you have me sort of interrogating these beliefs. I know for a long time, I was very critical and very, I don't know that I would say that I was ever a pessimist, but... I did grow up in a very conservative household. I grew up with a family that was very right wing. And so a lot of those beliefs were sort of ingrained in me at a young age. And so I did grow up thinking a lot of these things about how bad people are and how, you know, we can't have a welfare system because people will take advantage of it because people are just greedy and lazy and don't want to work and just want things for free.
0: This was your stance, really?
2: Oh yeah, as a child. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, That's what I mean. Yeah. But it's like, it's, you've come a long ways from (laughs)
2: Well, yeah. And so it actually, when I went to college, which I think, you know, for a lot of us is a time for learning what the world is like. When I went to college, I started to, you know, talk to people from other walks of life and from other cultures. And I had more friends who were LGBTQ and that also helped me, you know, realize like, oh, like these are just normal people. And so I think those experiences and then just some general, you know, mental health struggles that I had in college college, it was really that hope. <laughs> Uh, I suppose. I had to hold on to the belief that people were good to just make it through. And so I think I've just sort of held on to that because it helps. I think that when you're afraid that people are evil, I think that that fear can be kind of overwhelming and that it can kind of color a lot of your decisions. And, you know, like I said in some other videos of mine, I would always prefer to err on the side of giving people the benefit of the doubt and being kind and trusting people. And, you know, There are pros and cons to that. But I've I've just found that that just helps me go through life less afraid of everything.
1: Right. There's a useful psychology to that mindset. And to give some context, from what I've seen, you grew up in rural Appalachia.
2: Yep, West Virginia.
1: Wow, fascinating area. And your video on food was was quite interesting And talking about classism and how we denigrate certain foods.
0: We were talking a couple days ago, I think I was watching a sh- either a Sean video or I can't remember who it was, but it was talking about funding for universities. And I think it was Nixon. This is specifically the U.S. We being Canadians, we pay more attention to you guys than to ourselves often. <laughs> so they were talking about how I think Nixon didn't like that the universities were making people more class conscious and making people more conscious of like the system and getting them to actually take action in politics. And so it struck me that the reason that it's so expensive, I think I may have even said it directly in the video, is that it's basically either the system's working for you and you got a degree and like you don't want to really change it, or you're so crippled with debt that you can't stop working to do anything about it, or you can't go to school at all. And usually I'm not a fan of these kind of like conspiracy theories, but when it comes to government funding and where they put money, that is a centralized body that's choosing to fund this or not fund that. So what do you think about this? Is this track?
2: That is a good question and a big question. <laughs>
0: Let's see.
2: Well, so I'm like you. I also am not incredibly keen on those sorts of conspiracies, but I do think that there is, you know, evidence for it. And I think it is true in at least some Cases, you know, I don't know that it's true across the board because we do have things like, you know, community colleges and a lot of like state schools have pretty low tuition for kids in state. I mean, that was sort of my experience, both my husband and I. So I did have some student loans, but because we were both super nerds in high school, we got a lot of scholarships. So that covered that mostly for me. And it covered it entirely for him. He's one of those, you know, those kids who graduate without any debt and then everybody feels bitter toward them. (laughs) So, you know, it's hard from my position, you know, having the sort of privileged childhood that I had where I was very, you know, my, my parents were very supportive like academically and that allowed me to get the scholarships, et cetera. And so I do think that there is something broken with the higher education system in the U.S., but... Because I wasn't necessarily you know, the biggest victim of that, I haven't interrogated that element of it probably as much as I should, but no, I mean, the vibes of your suggestion, they sound right.
1: <laughs> right. And students being kind of burdened with, I guess uh, we can refer to an, an economic form of pain, I guess we can say, that is unforgivable, but you know, the corporations get these big bailouts, but then, you know, so it, it, there's kind of a juxtaposition between those two things.
0: Yeah, it's rules for thee, but not for me, as the phrase has been thrown by left and right all the time these days, at least we're in the spaces that I'm in. I wanted to think about safe spaces and triggers. For some reason, it feels related to this, but I don't think it is. Right, the universities. Yeah, I mean, more about the right wing being triggered and having safe spaces, because they have it all the time. They call everybody else snowflakes. But I saw somebody talking about they have persecution envy. They wish they had the right to claim persecution and said to make up these boogeymen being like, I'm being canceled, he says in the world's most watched news network. Like, what are you talking about? So what do you think about the right wing and, like, co-opting these words? I mean, like, Triggered is actually a really useful concept, but now it's just been so dragged to the mud. Right,
1: right.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's absurd, first of all. But I do think that it comes from a... Here I go, putting on my compassion goggles again. I think that it comes from a genuine place of fear and anxiety and i know that that argument in a lot of leftist spaces is frowned upon that you know like there is historically been an excuse for racism especially like in the south that you know oh the the white people were just racist because they had economic anxiety no they were just racist so that is not what i'm talking about (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> but i do think that when these conservative people whether they're you know the public or the big figures talking on national television when they talk about these bogeymen these you know woke crt things and and getting canceled i think that a lot of times their concerns are coming from a genuine place maybe not a lot of times some of the time their concerns are coming from a genuine place where they do feel that there's something wrong with the system they do, you know, have this like instinct that something isn't right and that things aren't fair for everyone. You know, you you see this with things like hiring quotas and things like that, where it's like, they wouldn't give me the scholarship because I'm white. It's like, no, <laughs> that's not how that works. But I think that, I don't know, I'm not sure how to like articulate this.
1: There's a systemic critique from the right there, which is not common, I guess.
2: Yeah. And so I think that they're framing it in the wrong way, obviously, but I think that some of those anxieties are rooted in feeling like something's wrong and not being able to figure out why or not being able to kind of pinpoint the correct cause or the right people to be mad at. Now, I think a lot of the time it's also just a grift.
0: The people but, Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to point out. I think it's the individuals I think often believe what they're saying because they're not very influential. They're shouting in their houses a lot of the time. So, but I think, yeah, we all get a sense that shit's broken and we got to fix it. And I think that's where one of the things I saw today was that apparently, young men are becoming more conservative and right-wing, and young women are becoming more progressive. And that might have to do with, like, there being, I think, a 60-40 split of gender in higher education towards women. So, like, 50% more women are in school, which means that they're going to be more progressive thinking about these things. But yeah, I think love is one of the most... I think it was from Sherlock, the first episode. Love is one of the most vicious of motivators, and he's right. People do the absolute worst possible things sometimes in the name of love because they think they're doing the right thing. That justifies
1: yeah. That gender split in terms of radicalization between the genders. I noticed when Phil said that you had a little bit of a reaction. Is there any anything there?
2: Is there anything there? <laughs> That's a good reaction, question. There's a little bit of a- well, so I, I do genuinely think that it is an issue. I think that a lot of young men are very bitter about it, and justifiably, like, I, I get it, you know, they, they feel like they have to fulfill all these roles, and they feel like they have to be the breadwinner, and they have to work, or they're the ones who can get drafted, etc. And it is a lot of pressure, and I think that higher ed should be more equitable across the board. I think that will solve a lot of problems, and I think that that would also help this frustration that a lot of young men are feeling. And I'm not saying, oh, why don't we give the boys a chance? Like, you know, you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. But But I I think that if we solve a lot of the bigger issues, then that issue will be solved as a result, if that makes sense. Right,
1: yeah.
0: Thinking about this we've talked about this a couple times about how like men's problems become everybody's problems and men are often tools for politics so in this situation there's a golden opportunity for these grifters as you called them and i agree that they can find these unhappy like basically underemployed undersexed undermotivated men can be polarized to do a lot of shit when you can paint a target for them to run at because they're looking for something basically and i think that's where a lot of like nerd culture which is i know you, you dabble in that as well has a lot of that because they think that's a space that they felt was theirs and is being encroached upon. Which it's like another thing that I had when you were saying that last piece was that basically an evening out of society will always feel like an attack on the privileged because they will feel they're losing. Where it's like, no, we're trying to make it so that everyone's got it good, not just you. But back to the nerd thing, I know I'm meandering around. What do you think about that as like the reason they're so vitriolic and possessive is because it's one of the last passions they feel of having actual control and power in their life?
2: Yes, 100%. This is something that I almost made a video about it because I discovered sort of by accident, this was months and months ago, the YouTube algorithm, praise (laughs) be. It functioned in the way that it was built to function in that my husband and I were watching a video from some random channel that we had never heard of before. And it was this video about why Jack and Daxter, the video game, the 3D platformer, is like the best video game and why, you know, it is a shame that it hasn't had more or it hasn't been like rebooted for modern consoles, etc. Because my husband is a huge Jack and Daxter fan. And it was great. And I was like, what a nice video. Let me check out this creator and see who they are and and figure out what their other videos are like. And they are very bad. (laughs) (laughs) Not in their quality necessarily. Like, they're fine. He just does video game reviews. But a lot of his other content is this video game is woke because it has a woman and, you know, a a black person as the protagonists. And it's like, hmm, that's interesting. And so I ended up now being interested for probably the wrong reasons. I ended up watching some of this creator's videos just to try and understand that issue and understand like, okay, what is the real issue here? And, And they don't always say the quiet part out loud, but sometimes they do. And that's when it's fun to catch them. But this idea of, okay, why Do these people, meaning young white guys, why do they feel like video games and TV shows and movies need to be white? and male and straight? Why does it feel like an attack on them anytime that there is a, you know, person of color or LGBTQ person in these pieces of media? And I did a little bit of a dive, not a whole bunch, because again, I didn't actually make a video on it, mostly because I didn't want to give this person any exposure. But yeah, I mean, this, this idea of like nostalgia and this, what I think is a false nostalgia that these people have, where they believe in this fake, <laughs> these like good old days, That didn't actually exist, where, you know, I I remember when I could play Dungeons and Dragons and it was all, you know, dudes. In, a, in our basement. It's like, no, there were women playing Dungeons and Dragons since Dungeons and Dragons was invented. People have been in these spaces forever. You just haven't noticed them or you were just avoiding them. Maybe that's what you should be thinking about instead of, you know, being angry at them. And so you have this false nostalgia, but you also have, like you said, you know, the sense of like, this is the last thing that we have. They've taken it over everything else. <laughs> you know, they've they've taken over Hollywood. Now all we have is our video games and now they're trying to take over that as well. I could go on like a whole spiel, so I'll cut it off there.
0: Well, I mean, We're having you on to hear your thoughts, so you're welcome to keep going if you'd like.
1: It seems super relevant to all this. It's like the pain of a threatened identity and sense of belonging and all of that.
0: Oh, yeah. So that sense of
2: identity, that was sort of the way that I wanted to frame that deep dive, where it's like, okay, how do these people create their identities? Like, what are the features that they kind of latch on to and attach to themselves? And one of those, so it's not just the, you know, like white, young man features but it's also the idea of being a real fan or a real gamer as opposed to a you know fake fan or a poser or a casual a filthy casual, if you will. <laughs> and that was one of the distinctions that I thought was really interesting, this difference between who counts as a real gamer and who counts as a filthy casual. And speaking as someone who I've been playing video games literally my entire life, but I'm also not very good at them. <laughs> I am, in fact, very bad at video games. And like, I, I like the more hardcore games, and I also like the really casual games. I think that it's interesting to try and figure out who counts as a casual and who counts as a real gamer and
1: I don't remember where I was going with this but it's all relevant to the politics of identity and belonging but we're talking about it on the right because we often hear about the right criticizing the left for this same politics
0: yeah yes yeah on the topic of Hollywood I wanted to see what you think about this like I'm for representation I want these things to be out there I want alternative characters to exist because like it just expands the experience available to sample from same with like women creators and video games what I do have a qualm with right now is capitalism being capitalism and taking these things and slapping them on garbage and then saying, this is quality. Like, you should definitely be into this. And if you don't like it, then that's against you. This is a point I have to be very careful with because I think the right wing often can hate things just out of just pure spite like you are describing. But it does seem like some of this is just trash man like i really like the character she hulk and i am extremely disappointed with how that show is going i know i'm not like the target demographic but i feel like they just kind of forget writing principles when they start doing these things like the new mulan for instance like they just kind of there was no character growth and she just is amazing but the original was amazing because it was supposed to be inspirational for somebody to be able to grow and expand and see a character like themselves that gets to be great from humble beginnings what do you think about that
2: do you think that the issue is that these properties in particular are falling prey to poor writing? So like, do you think that it's, you know, people in Hollywood saying like, you know, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this because it checks all of those boxes of, you know, for representation, or do you think that it's a larger issue with poor writing quality? And it's just that these properties are falling victim to it just because everything is falling victim to it.
0: I mean, that's a question I I haven't thought and maybe enough about that. And also I'm glad like, you seem to implicitly agree with my assessments. I'm like, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe these things are actually like (laughs) just my personal bias. I mean, it could be.
2: I do sense that there is a growing trend in poorly written media, just generally. <laughs> like I recently been re-watching Breaking Bad because I just finished Better Call Saul and then I was like, oh, you know what? I should re-watch Breaking Bad just to piece everything together again. Infinite loop. And yeah, that's how they get you. Like both of those shows are incredibly highly rated. Like they're really well written. I mean, they're not perfect by any means, but they are, I think, really great writing that is also really accessible. And it's so frustrating to see what media can be and then see what it actually is. And because my husband and I have been watching Rings of Power, which I think it's great. Again, not perfect, but I think it's pretty good. So we've been talking a lot about Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit films, and he's been listening to the audiobooks, the Lord of the Rings audiobooks as well. And so we're getting just like all of these different versions of very similar stories and we get to see which ones do it well and which ones do not do it well. And you know, I think that there's just this larger trend of things not being written well because there's a lot of causes for it. And I realize this is not a writing podcast, but let me go on this tangent for a second. I think there's a lot of causes (laughs) for this issue. I think one of them is the need for connecting universes to each other and constantly like expanding universes in media. because. Because of capitalism, because it's, you know, if if we have all of these connections to it, then that means that we can, you know, sell toys for all of these different things, which, you know, and I think that that causes issues generally. I'm not going to go into that tangent. Just bear with me. I think one of the other reasons that... Or one of the other causes for this poor writing is a lack of media literacy on the part of, I think, a lot of consumers where, you know, if you, how do I phrase this? A lot of current pop culture has an exposition issue where they really like to just lay everything out very explicitly. They like to constantly have just a ton of dialogue, most of which is very like utilitarian. You know, it's either like progressing the plot or being a funny quip and there's nothing else that exists as far as dialogue goes you know the way that things are shot and edited is very utilitarian there is a lack of artistry and patience And a lack of appreciation for silence and giving the audience room to think about things. And I realize this all sounds very pretentious, but I think that that is the issue. And I think that it is a larger issue and that, you know, a lot of these diverse pieces of media, if that's what you want to call them, are just falling prey to this larger issue.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't call it pretentious either. I'll, I'll defend you there. Yeah, and I think that the expanding universes makes sense. And I think it's also a matter of tech giants not being broken up by antitrust laws that should have been exercised long ago. I think it was like 60% of media in the theaters, or I guess movies in the theaters are Disney these days, or Disney properties that somehow related, which they're the ones that I would point to being like, yeah, the quality is significantly dropping, like, because they just have so much stuff coming down the pipeline that just can't stop the sludge from flowing it seems because like they're trying to get you excited after Infinity War and now it's just like it's just so many things it's a folly of comic books that they aren't even learning from first I was like yeah they're following comic books and now I'm like ah, shit they're following comic books because it's like comic books are great because like the stories were amazing and then they became too bloated and there's too much backstory and then they're trying to like increase sales by doing cross promotions constantly and it's all happening on a different medium now and so like we're just having to deal with that now hopefully it'll get fixed but like I don't know I think California might have done some extra stuff coming out I don't know I don't know if I remember that correctly. You haven't heard much.
2: I have not, but doesn't mean it's not happening. Just means that I'm not paying attention.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully it's happening. Steve, do you have any comments?
1: This has firmly fallen out of my area of expertise. Yeah. I don't watch films. I don't do any fiction. Film criticizes me, says I should read fiction all the time. Yes, But it looks like we've really stepped into, Zoe's always, kind of your primary expertise here of the writing and literature. And you have made so many videos on that, especially more recently. I actually love your video on nothing, was actually Quake. The quality of writing is just so poetic. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting that that is one it doesn't have a ton of views which is fine like I get it. But I have had people like individually come up to me and say like, hey, what come up to me like on the internet and say, hey, like this video of yours, it's so weird and I love it, which makes me like I'm I'm really grateful because that one was very experimental. So my background is in academic writing. I studied rhetoric and composition and my focus in grad school was composition pedagogy. So like teaching people how to write, but like boring writing, not like fiction writing but as far as my own writing that I've done I have published poems in a few journals under my maiden name so I can't talk about them without doxing myself unfortunately and so getting to like lean into the poetry and lean into just you know indulging all of those fun kind of things that I love to do with language that I don't necessarily fit in bigger more you know serious essays that was a really enjoyable video to make so I'm glad that you enjoyed it.
1: I highly recommend it. (laughs) Check out I don't know what it's Called, but it's a video on the topic of nothing.
2: Yeah, I think it's this video is about nothing.
0: Yes, yes. Do you watch horror?
2: Are you asking me?
0: Yeah, I know Steve does, oh. doesn't watch
1: the games. Like I don't watch so. anything really. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, yes, I do. Well, actually, that's a lie. I don't, <laughs> but I do read a lot of horror because I, speaking of pain and the avoidance of pain, I am a coward. I am very easily frightened, and so horror films are not really my thing. They are terrifying, and I am afraid. So when I indulge horror, it's all written. Like my first three videos that I ever made two years ago now were a sort of mini-series on some H.P. Lovecraft short stories and sort of analyzing the psychology and, and sociological stuff associated with those. And I've been on a big Thomas Ligotti kick recently. He's a horror short story writer.
1: Like it sounds like we've kind of made the connection between pain and literature in, in many ways, because horror and particularly the visual depictions of horror is so much as Phil and I were talking about recently, we just hate the blood and gore and pain focused horror we like psychological type of horror like the, the the absurd kind of horror yeah
0: i actually make a distinction because i've seen this conversation a bit online between horror and terror because i think they should be different because terror's goal is to make you scared whereas horror is supposed to be like cut kind of like bloodcraftian where like you come across something that's just so unfathomable and disgusting and shouldn't exist that's <laughs> like horror to me so like steve likes the really disturbing stuff like some of it i like, can't even watch just it's, not scary. it's just like oh god this is so uncomfortable like are they actually going in that direction please stop it's just that's just torture for me <laughs> like happiness i think was one of the movies it's just like suburban horror i guess but it's not it's,
1: it's a not comedy it's, it's, it's yeah. absurdly it's a comedy reason. At yeah. best,
0: yeah. I guess the reason I brought up horror is because there's a movie called The Night House, and it has this kind of mystery going on about like what is actually happening, and like there's this is lying, and it keeps recurring. That's like nothing is after you. So like this video is about nothing. It's like a kind of play on that, but uh, it's it's lost because nobody knows the movie. So I probably shouldn't have returned to it.
2: So I I do think this is something that you have touched on a couple of times now and so I want to talk about it. You were mentioning that when we're talking about pain, both the right and the left have some issues with how they talk about it and how they avoid it. And I want to connect this to literature because you were talking about how horror is connected to pain, just sort of like intrinsically, I think. And there is a current trend in literature and social media where a a lot of people, particularly on the left, they take this avoidance of pain to an extreme. I believe this is a hot take. A lot of people disagree with me. So just, so they, they take this avoidance of pain to an extreme. And what that entails is also wanting to avoid anything uncomfortable, anything subversive, anything dark or morally ambiguous often in literature. And literature, of course, here means like books and movies and TV shows, all of it. And I do see that as a trend that is happening. which I don't think is a good thing. And I think that it is a way that this avoidance of pain can go too far because, you know, I really like nice stories. I really like stories that are happy. I really like, you know, feel good movies. Like I just recently rewatched Everything Everywhere All at Once and like what an incredible film. Like it makes my heart so happy to watch that film. But I also recognize that if all of our art is just good and happy and joyful all the time, it's not actually doing anything. It's not actually pushing any boundaries or challenging anything. And I think that that's one of the purposes of art is that, you know, at least some of our art should do that. And I think one of the best ways to do that is through uncomfortable things and dark things, and, you know, stuff that pushes boundaries. So one of the punching bags for this trend has been Game of Thrones. Now, I think Game of Thrones is fine. I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. I read the books, at least all the ones that are currently out, and they're fine. Like, I feel pretty not super strongly one way or the other. But Game of Thrones, the TV show, was... punching bag for this because a lot of people who you know are are part of this trend they say that showing any violence toward women any sexual violence the amount of just like physical gore uh, in that show the fact that you know there's not really anybody who's like good
0: Mm, grimdark
2: yeah it's the word they use that is yeah and like on the one hand, I understand where they're coming from. Like I feel very strongly about sexual violence on screen. That's why I haven't watched Westworld because that's just not something that I like to engage with. But I don't think that that means that that art is inherently bad or evil or should be condemned. And so that is one place where I I do think that people on the left can kind of overdo it a little bit is when they take these standards and they apply them to art and they say that all art should be you know one thing. And because if all of art is one thing, then what's the point
1: yeah mm-hmm. right yeah i love the connection between the topics how we just kind of brought pain and discomfort and, and art and literature together and kind of a nice package there
0: yeah i think a couple of thoughts to do with horror is i think the main consumers of horror are probably more progressive if I had to I don't know. I have no research to back that up. But it just seems like the conservatives I know, the media they consume is going to be base reality. It's going to be like this world, this setting a lot of the time, usually from their perspective. It's like they're not wanting to or willing to engage with something that's not this because I guess it's fantasy or something or it might put ideas in their head. I don't I don't know exactly what the reasoning is there. That might just be some sort of sensibility and the personality that tends towards that. What do you think? Does that mesh with you? Because you come from a much more conservative area than we do, I believe.
2: I think that it comes back to the idea of what is realistic, you know, like we were talking about with Dennis Prager and his idea that like, it's unrealistic to believe that people are good or that, you know, pain can be avoided. And so it's this focus on realism, which I also have a video on. Oh, yeah. Gotta always plug. It's it's not exactly (laughs) or I I don't talk about it specifically from this kind of realism in the video. But yeah, I, I think that people on the right, like you were saying, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it is, you know, a sort of, causal relationship, or if it's just, you know, they happen to believe both of those things. But I do think that people on the right do focus more on what is realistic and what is, you know, the hard truths that you have to just accept.
0: Though... I do notice that these days like their safe spaces tend to be things like ethnic enclaves stuff like that and they think that like the censorship of words is only a left thing because of the trend you're describing but they are literally burning books in places in the states right now like in protest about like CRT or trans stuff or whatever the moral panic of the day is basically which will be a perpetual panic I think it's gonna be like the war on terror just rolling panic about whatever they can find but I think and I don't want to both sides that because like both sides are dealing with books in ways that we probably shouldn't because that's not great but when it comes to the left overreach it's like it's harder to get but you can still probably find it whereas the right i think it goes a bit more fascistic where it's like they want their propaganda and nothing else like they don't see it as propaganda because it's their viewpoint but steve you want to make a comment you i think we're talking about how like that sort of censorship can end up not giving exposure to certain things like making it anti-cbt kind of like jonathan height
1: area oh Kind of like, yeah, the the debate Jonathan Haidt had about trigger warnings and safe spaces in universities. And he, being a psychologist, is arguing that these things are anti-psychological or like cognitive behavioral therapy because it's condoning avoidance in the same way that if you were doing therapy with someone, you wouldn't kind of hype up like, oh, this thing's going to be really bad. (laughs) It's just warning you (laughs) where it's like actually kind of making a big deal out of something that he believes should be normal normalized and people should face it though i kind of disagree with what he was saying because he's applying an individual clinical metric to something that's systemic and it doesn't quite match because i mean i think both have a clinically appropriate trigger warning where it's not like the teacher saying like this is going to be really bad (laughs) we can't watch this you know but it it can be like just so you know we're going to be talking about these difficult topics and it actually helps someone psychologically to kind of get to that space they need to to be able to sit through it versus it leading to instant overwhelm and they have to eject. So I think there's like a non-avoidance in trigger warnings because it allows people to be able to be present, probably more likely, if anything.
0: Properly used. Properly used. But that's, I think, where it goes a little bit far, right? Because like now people can think they're being helpful by like making things so they'll never come across it ever. And it's just could become like a crippling phobia if that continues right so like yeah I agree with you that they should exist and they should be used there to like be like okay be prepared you should probably still do this but like it's gonna be there be ready and not this is something you should never don't touch this
1: yeah anyone who doesn't like this leave the room right now
0: yeah get out
1: (laughs) that this is not the way I think they would typically be enacted anyway and if someone is using trigger warnings to automatically avoid then there's like some kind of stuff to work through and get them to the spot where they don't have to but yeah it looks like there's some agreement here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that what it really comes down to is giving viewers or audiences a choice. You know, they can decide whether they want to engage with it or not. It's always funny when I do content warnings in my videos, because at the beginning of videos, whenever I'm talking about super heavy stuff, I give a content warning because I think that that's, I don't know, it's not a lot of extra effort on my part and I figure it, it can, you know, potentially help some people. So yeah, I respectful. just do it. And it's funny, the number of comments that I get from people who are upset that I even included a content warning in the first place.
0: <laughs> They're triggered by content warnings.
2: Yeah. Triggered by trigger warnings. Yes. <laughs> and it's it's just so funny that like they're upset by the existence of content warnings and <laughs> yeah just yeah. like the the fact that I feel like I need to do it, I guess. I don't know. I don't really understand where they it comes from. Signaling. I just, yeah, I just find it very funny.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: A paradox that this makes me think of is the other paradox about virtue signaling from the right, which is virtue signaling hating virtue signaling. And it's like, Jesus, can you get more ironic? Like, how <laughs> are, are we living in the onion headlines here? Like, what is going on? Man <laughs> screams on stage about how he hates virtue signaling to sympathetic audience. Like, oh my God, please. <laughs>
1: so meta yeah <laughs> So uh, the content warning is giving your audience a choice. I like that. And that's the way I was referring to it in terms of prefacing any lectures or, or other content with it. It's giving the individual a choice and even mentally preparing them to be able to perhaps sit through something that could lead to instant overwhelm if they weren't prepared for it. And if there's a problem with being able to face it and there's a real avoidance pattern, that's something for them to work out in their own therapy individually. Not, you know, the, the, the creator's decision of my audience, you know, I'm just going to throw it at them, whatever happens, you know.
0: I mean, I agree. These are the best form. It's just that presumes people have access to therapists and actually be able to work through these things. Because like what we're dealing with is like, I guess this is, I guess, the part where the rubber meets the road is that people often don't have those things. And so we have to trust them to be their own judge of these things. But like we do often go astray because like like I was saying, like people can become completely phobic in this avoidance. Though I think in general, it's still best to have. I, I think that's just being respectful. I don't know. I don't think there's a real solution other than make mental health more widely available, make public funding for health a priority but then you won't be changed to a job and the system will fall apart so I guess that can't happen (laughs) our our
1: current system in the US
0: (laughs) our system is actually being chipped away at by our provincial lead at the moment he's actually been for like decades our healthcare system is supposed to be really good but right now I'm in Brazil and their healthcare system as they describe it a third world country is better than ours (laughs) in terms of like availability speed like I mean price obviously but accessibility I had to pay I think $400 for vaccine to come here and then they're like you paid for vaccines i'm like yeah they were just like they weren't mandatory they were optional ones for travel they're like yeah we wouldn't pay for those and so i can go right now here visiting to get vaccines apparently for free and like dental stuff and other things in a third world country and it's like what is going on what <laughs> it's not really related to anything we we're i'm we're just gonna about.
2: go go cry in an american and soon to
0: be canadian apparently <laughs> but steve do you have anything you want to cover or zoe if you have anything no. prepared uh-
2: Oh, anything prepared.
0: <laughs> Any thoughts on the top of your head? Wild like, question. Um, take a little dip.
2: Well, so when you, this might be a whole, like too big of a can of worms, so let me know if it's Too much. But as we've been talking about content warnings and access to mental health care, it makes me think about the way that the internet reacts to self-diagnosis and also just the way that the internet reacts to people who struggle with mental health issues. You know, there's a tweet that I saw recently that essentially was saying that people love to say that they are accepting of people with mental illnesses, but like what they mean is, you know, this stuff that's easy to hide. Is what they're accepting of. It's it's the stuff that sucks, you know, those those parts of being mentally ill that are really awful and, you know, can really disrupt your life that, like, people aren't incredibly accepting of those, even if they say that they are. And so I just, I wonder if there's something there relating
1: to pain as well. Right. Socially acceptable forms of pain. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think
0: about invisible handicaps or disabilities. I don't remember the right word at the moment. Because, like, I've seen videos of people flipping out at people parking in the space specialized spaces, the dedicated spaces. And it's like, they're saying, no, you're not, you don't have a problem. Like, and they're like, I have a form right here. And who are you? You're not the police, go away. But they are acting like policing these things, gatekeeping spots. And I think mental health is even more so in that vein because being mentally unwell can often present as being a dick and people can't tell the difference. And it's like, they could be like dealing with a lot of shit at the moment. And you just come along and you're like, hey, you dropped this (laughs) or like something. And then like, they flip out at them. So like, yeah, it's, it's difficult because people just think, I don't do that. I control myself. So why can't you just control yourself? That's like, why can't you just snap out of it? That's kind of, I think the layperson's take even now after like a century of research.
2: I mean, there's also, like, the other side of it, too, where it's people who... I don't know of a better way to phrase this, but people who, some would argue, are using their mental illnesses as an excuse, and you are the experts here, but I know that there was recently, like, a wave of, like, kids on TikTok who were saying that they have, like, dissociative identity disorder, and, like, that's why, you know, they do XYZ, and it's like, no, (laughs) you probably don't, and, you know, it's very, like, squishy territory, but... Like, as someone who I had an adult diagnosis of ADHD and I'm still like, I mean, this was, you know, four or five years ago now, but I'm still kind of learning coping mechanisms and, and ways to kind of solve problems in a way that, you know, works with my brain rather than against my brain. And it's been hard for me personally to find that line between understanding that my brain works a certain way, but also understanding that like, I still need to like function as a human being. (laughs) And like, you know, it doesn't matter if I have executive dysfunction, I still need to put the laundry away. And so it's that that I think sort of connects it to the avoidance of pain where it's like, are people, you know, are they making excuses for things just because they like for legitimate reasons? or just because, you know, they want to avoid the pain of like being a person because being a Free person is hard. Kind of yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. Again, these are all like very squishy questions, but you're the psychology experts here.
1: <laughs> I think you're certainly onto something. It's like from a trauma informed perspective, it's not your fault that you have this and or what happened to you to create this, but it's your still your responsibility to do something about it. In the same way with any physical illnesses, we would, expect the same thing you know it's not your fault that if you've gotten some kind of diagnosis physically and now if you're not going to I mean with politics of healthcare aside <laughs> there's a problem of access but if you're not trying to do something about it then that's a problem and so I think I think you're right on there
0: one thing I came up thinking about this was the problem I posed to people across the political spectrum just to see gauge reactions. Because like in Canada, we actually had like recurring funds basically given to citizens during the pandemic. And it depended on circumstances or whatever else. But like one person I was talking to was talking about, and this is how I came up with the problem that I asked them. He was saying that people were gaming the system and getting lots of money and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, okay, like here are two options. Do we want to make it so A, everyone who needs help will get it and they can like business owners, average people, mom and pop, everyone else. But that there will be a small percentage of people who are going to be gaming the system and getting it when they shouldn't? Or do we want to make it so that not everyone gets what they need? Most of them do, but there won't be any free riders. And I think that usually gets a lot of conservatives to fall on the side of like, we should probably just accept there's going to be a little bit of waste. Like, uh, the most of the ones I've talked to have been, been like, yeah, when you put it in concrete terms, I think a lot of leftist stuff is just really bad marketing, man. Like, we haven't gotten the emotional notes down. And it's like, we agree on a lot of stuff. It's just how to get there, like how we're framing it. Like Fox News and the right wing really good at hitting those emotional points, really just beating the shit out of them constantly. And like the messages are very simple, digestible. So it's just convincing people to do things that are against their own best interests. Yeah. What do you think about all this? What do you think about the question? How do you think people will react to that?
2: So I think that you're right that it is a like marketing issue or a, you know, issue of rhetorical framing, because it's funny, my in-laws are extremely conservative. And when we have discussions about, political things often because, you know, again, I, I try very hard to like toe the line and come at things with a empathetic perspective. And so I, I often try to see where they're coming from. And usually like we see the same issues. We notice the same problems. Like we know that there is an issue with how businesses are like taking over. (laughs) Like we all we all agree that that's a problem. It's just how to solve it. And I think a lot of people, you know, they're just afraid of some of the solutions because they've been, you know, taught that the socialism word and the communism word are all super bad words. And so it's this gut reaction that's, you know, like no, we can't even think about this. And you know, I think Mark Fisher is the one who coined this term, but it's that capitalist realism, which is, you know, we're in this system, and so it's really really hard. to see anything outside of the system you know we believe that capitalism is the only thing that functions because we've been told it's the only thing that functions and because we're living within the system that you know, some of us think that it is functioning. And so it's really hard for people to like move past that threshold and start to see things from outside. And so that is sort of what I try to do with my videos and my content. Like anytime people ask, like if you had to like, you know, summarize your, your entire ethos in a thesis statement, it's trying to help people learn how to ask questions that will help them start to see outside of these systems or start to, you know, look at these structures from the top down rather than from the bottom up. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: (laughs) Such a sociological perspective. Yeah.
0: I've noticed that when I talk to people that are very entrenched in their right-wing whirlpool, if I talk about things without using buzzwords, specifically without using buzzwords, and I just describe problems and say like possible solutions, they usually don't pick the conservative option, which is like, it's just, I think to me, like I agree with you that that's a, a way to get like the top-down looking at systemic things. I think my solution would be avoiding those words and doing it in like a fable form because like people love narratives. And if you do it in a way that like is like a nice story and it hits on the gut, that's the marketing the left needs basically like decent fables that are able to sell these things without being just like really obvious allegories, I think, because otherwise they'll just see through that. They're not stupid, but like just presenting it in a way that's going to be digestible and engageable. But like your videos are doing a great job in
1: my opinion. And bringing it back to that, I was was just thinking the same thing. It looks like that's kind of what you're up to.
2: That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, it's hard because one of the difficult things moving from academia to content creation (laughs) is when you're teaching a class, like you only have, you know, the classes that I was teaching, luckily, they were small. So I only had, you know, 15 to 20 students in each class. And, you know, you know who they are and you can have conversations with them and you can really get to know each of them individually and help them on an individual level and, Because there is the student teacher dynamic, usually they are at least respectful, if not like kind. That is not the case on the internet (laughs) where you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people who don't really give a shit about who you are. And they just see you as this, you know, face on a screen. And so they think that they can talk to you however they want, which like, I mean, I guess technically they can. And so it's been difficult to accept that I cannot give my 200,000 subscribers the individual attention that I gave my, you know, 40 students, which, you know, but I've had to learn that I can't please everybody and that's you know, not all of my videos are made for everyone and that I have to pick and choose my battles. So there, there's definitely been a learning curve, but yeah, I mean, things are going well and I'm, you know, extremely happy that my video about the grading system and, you know, some of my like education critiques are the videos that have, done extremely well because I, you know, I I do genuinely believe in all of the the arguments that I'm making. And I just, I don't know, hope that it's actually doing something
0: good and useful. That's, you mean that's you're, the not, dream. you're not a paid show by big leftism? <laughs> I,
2: I haven't gotten my, my George Soros check yet. <laughs>
0: uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah.
1: Oh no.
0: That's good. So I found like we've only been doing this I don't know. It's been like a year and a half now, maybe two years. Yeah. Almost. And at the beginning, we had no audience, obviously, because you're just beginning and like, there's no real algorithm that helps with podcasts. But the thing is, I still felt myself like freaking out about like, should I have said that? Like, oh my God, like, what are people going to react like this? Because we're having more live conversations. So scripting, like you can know what you've said and how you're saying it. Whereas I've definitely probably put my foot in my mouth, like over the however many dozen hours we've been speaking (laughs) on the internet. So it's just like, how do you deal with that anxiety? like of people like freaking out
2: so (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) i wish i had an answer (laughs) it's it's hard i mean i've been doing this this month is two years i released my my lovecraft videos in october of 2020 and i have only just now like just in the past few months learned how to not read all of the comments And that has helped a ton. Like I used to only read comments for a few days and then I would stop. And now it's gotten to the point where like I read comments for the first hour or two and then that's it. And I just forget that it exists. And like, I don't look at analytics and it's so freeing. And I also like, I recognize that that is, you know, I am extremely lucky (laughs) in my content creation journey that I am doing well enough that I can afford to like not really care because at the beginning you have to and, and you can get, kind of obsessive about it. And so, you know, I think worrying about what I say and how I say it is a similar concern. For me, a lot of it is the like technical stuff, because again, like the writing I can do, I've been writing for my whole life, but editing videos and, and getting lighting to be good and like audio quality, like all of that is so alien to me that it it's extremely difficult. And so I'm even still a little like self-conscious about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's, tough. I think it just takes time, but I think it also takes finding things that you are passionate about that are outside of whatever content you're making. Like I started doing this full time about a year ago, about a year ago. Yes. About a year ago. And so one of the things that I have that I focus on is my family and my pets and we just bought a house. And so that's been like wild. Thank you. It's been a whole thing, genuinely too much to go into. And so really like putting energy into something creative or something that you care about that has nothing to do with the content that you make, having that clean separation between the two, that also has really helped because then, you know, you you don't get all of your self-worth from what randos on the internet have to say that's unhealthy and dangerous
1: for sure looks like you've developed a a very healthy psychological strategy that actually resembles acceptance and commitment therapy (laughs) and and a a useful way to cope with pain similar to i guess the, the philosophy of the stoics as uh, acceptance of that which is beyond your control the random comments accepting it leaving it not looking at it and then pivoting toward values and things that matter and that's the core of the the acceptance commitment approach that it seems like you're doing quite effectively to manage it. this
2: is legitimately the same conversation that i had with my therapist
1: yesterday <laughs> oh, <laughs> so interesting
0: <laughs>
2: yes it is we're all it's all yeah working toward that goal of making things easier on yourself i guess but what yourself and your health and your priorities first because that's you know it's important
0: yeah removing the distress and keeping the you stress <laughs> yep yeah, that is the, the goal yeah it's a good place i think unless you guys want to have anything else so we've taken enough of your time <laughs> it's been almost an hour and a half at least according to yeah this.
2: i mean i'm again i do youtube full-time i am free all of the time
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know maybe you have like a, a wild social life you don't we have no <laughs>
2: <idea>. <laughs> i don't leave the house are you kidding
0: (laughs) (laughs) wild social (laughs) Uh, yeah but thanks for coming on we'd love to have you on again in the future of course thank you
2: for having me yeah thanks a lot i hope i didn't say anything bad
0: (laughs) oh terrible things but they're entertaining at least so
1: (laughs) it's been very good thanks a lot for for coming on of course thank you for having me
0: this time it feels appropriate for some reason to add a little addendum on the end here. You can find her on YouTube at Zoe B, Zoe space B-E-E, and then on Twitter at Zoe underscore the B. I also wanted to say that She-Hulk ends very strong. And if you enjoyed this, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't see any real difference from the ones that we got on Spotify. I mean, both if you can. If you can't, well, that's fine too. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. And yeah, uh, share with your friends if you enjoy it. So now I'm at a loss for words for no reason.